Turn over to Luke chapter 12 if you like. By the way, I do have a confession to make, and I need your advice. Um, when, the, when the trays came around, I picked up two wafers by mistake. And, and I don't know if that makes me a glutton, but if you think I need to take out of the glutton-free container next week, I can do that. I'm, I'm open. You know, just let me know. I want to be humble and, and, you know, be forthright. Somebody needs to work on their spelling, though. There's a little problem. In, in Luke chapter 12, this is our, our, our passage for today. It says, I have come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What an amazing passage, isn't it? You know, there's, you may wonder, what in the world is that? Um, I, the way I view this passage and the way we're going to work through it here this morning is, is they're kind of atomic dots. They're little phrases. And, the, and they each kind of stand on their own, but as, as you look at them in context, they're part of a bigger picture, right? This is part of an Impressionist painting. Uh, and, and so if, if you look, a little shadow down by the boat is made of a few little dots. And you can see it's a shadow of a man, right? So when you step back and look at it in context, the picture emerges. And that's what we want to do this morning. We're going to look at this emerging picture. We're going to look at these dots and see that, how they fit in and see the picture that builds for us. Uh, this is a picture by Monet, and, and, and you can buy it if you have a lot of Monet. Um, <laughs> You know, you spend Monet to get Monet. It seems like a wash, I guess. But so here are our dots that we're going to deal with this morning. And you, if if you really want an outline, if 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 you're in angst about taking sermon notes and you don't see structure, um, there's your dots. You can put a one in front of them, if, or a two and a three, if you want. But we're going to talk about these atomic statements. I have come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo. What constraint I'm under until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. So we're going to look at those. And, and uh, again, the rest of the passage sends illustration of, of the, the final dot as well. So let's start with this first one. I've come to bring fire on earth. I grew up in Colorado. And uh, come July, August time frame, the risk of forest fires went way up. And forest fires, you know, this, this isn't fire in the context of, hey, let's just sing around, you know, the campfire and roast marshmallows or warm our hands. This is terrifying. This is cataclysmic. This is incredible. You know, the, the worst fear for many, many 
living in the mountains, with property in the mountains, is that a forest fire would come through. Because there is no stopping it. The best you can hope to do is build a containment line, you know, uh, take the fuel away from something maybe 100 yards wide, 50 yards wide, pray that the wind isn't uh, enough to cause the embers to jump that, and hopefully the fire would then starve itself out with the fuel that it has. You're not going to sit there with a hose and, and, and kill it. Forest fires are raging. They're consuming. They just fly through. When they start topping, that's, again, the worst fear of a firefighter. And when they start jumping tree to tree at the top, they just, they fly. They just rage through the woods. So when Jesus is talking about bringing a fire on earth, I think this is the type of fire he's talking about. If you go back to the Old Testament and look at the, the fire of God's judgment as discussed by the prophets, it is an overwhelming cataclysmic affair. It is descending from the north. It will wipe you out. So I think this is the fire that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about it just on, on his own. You know, he's not coming up and saying, hey, here's, here's kind of, I'm, I'm intimating what I'm about. This was foretold. Look at the words of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the scrap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. He's talking about Jesus. This is who he is saying, this is who's coming. Now here's a picture of a guy using a winnowing fork and a threshing floor. A threshing floor is where you, you dump the wheat and it has the, the, the shell around it. You beat that until the, the hard shell kind of breaks away. And then in order to separate that shaft or that, that, that shell from the kernel, you grab this one-wing fork and you throw it up in the air. The wind catches the light material. It drips away to the side. The heavier grain falls straight back down. So this is spiritually what John the Baptist is saying Jesus is coming to do, to thrash, to throw up in the air, to let the wind, the pneuma, which in the New Testament, pneuma is a word for spirit, Holy Spirit. Let the spirit judge. Pull the shaft to the side. Let the authentic, faithful, those who accept the message, come back down to separate the two. What's left to the side, what's blown away to the side, is worthless. It's burned up. So that's the Jesus that we're dealing with this morning. Now, if you're like me, this is the Jesus that you want to think about, right? He's got a neatly trimmed beard. He looks very Anglo-Saxon to me. I, um, and, and I'm sure his, his robe smells like bounty. You know? Um, he's, he's got little Jimmy on his, on his lap. And, and they're looking at a butterfly. Isn't that sweet? Oh, now, there's a facet of tenderness and compassion and love and gentleness to Jesus. We see that. But it's a facet. Women, if you hold up your your uh, your wedding ring and you see that that uh, what would you think if you had a diamond that had just flat, you know, no cuts on it, no facets. 
That that wouldn't look right, would it? But but we tend to start getting a one-dimensional Jesus a lot of times. And we have to grapple with this winnowing fork, throwing the grain in the air, burning the shaft, Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he claims. He says, I have come to do this. So that's the first dot. I've come to bring fire on the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. We'll deal with that aspect of it's, it will be lit in the future. We'll deal with that in a few minutes here. But, but just that first dot, get that picture in your mind. This is a Jesus, a force to be reckoned with. He is a force. He is setting a blaze of forest fire that's going to wipe through the earth. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I'm under until it is completed. A baptism to undergo, well, um, more literally, and in fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible does this a bit more word for word. In the Greek, it is, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, is the way it's written. Now, just, I promise this will be the only Greek we have in the lesson this morning, okay? There are a couple different words used uh, that kind of have that root of baptism in, in the New Testament. The first is, is uh, bapto. And that means to dip or to immerse. Baptizo is a derivative of that. And that means to immerse or submerge. And it, it can mean to overwhelm. So if you think about um, this idea of being overwhelmed, if uh, say an avalanche was coming down and it just completely overtook you, you would be baptized, baptizo in that avalanche. Avalanche, it would be overwhelming to you. And that's the, the, the words that are used here in this word, the baptizo. Jesus isn't talking about, I'm going to get dipped in, a, you know, some, some suffering or something like that. He is talking about, I have an overwhelming suffering that's, that's coming upon me. I have something that will completely immerse me, um, uh, that, that I need to go through. And then he, he, he goes on. Well, let's, let's talk about that, that idea of, of what is this baptism here in Isaiah 53. And it's an incredible passage. It's known even among the Jews at this point as a suffering servant. Uh, and it's a foretelling of what the Messiah, uh, would be. And, and, but throughout there, point by point by point, it's talking about the servant of God suffering and going through an ordeal. And in uh, in this context, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll read these little excerpts from verses 10 and 11 together. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. After he has suffered, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So even in the time of Isaiah, there's this foretelling, this this projection forward. This is what the Christ will be. He will bear the sins of many, but that won't be a clinical um, kind of a easy thing, frankly, for, for him to go through. This is going to be suffering. This is going to be endurance. This will be agony. To bear the sins or the iniquities of many means that he will go through an incredible turmoil. So Isaiah 53 pronounces hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. And we see that unfold in his life. 
Jesus says, I'm constrained, how constrained I am until it is finished or until it's done. Your translation may, may, uh, may say something a little different. Some translations say distressed. Um, there's about 12 occurrences of this word in the New Testament. It always means you know, something like enclosed, hemmed in, encircled, under pressure. It, there's a passage that talks about um, uh, an enemy coming in and encircling the city, laying siege to it. This word is used. It's interesting that it's used too in some, some contexts that, that are near and dear to our hearts. Second Corinthians uh, 5.14, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. That word compel is the same word here, constrain. It means hemmed in. And literally, it means leaves us no choice. You think about that. You made the decision upon your, baptize, your baptism, that Jesus was Lord. You have no choice at this point whether to be obedient or not. Yeah, you know, we, we wake up like, like Paul saying, you know, I die daily. <laughs> you know, we have decisions to make. But the framework by which we make those decisions, that's already been made. You should not be getting up every day to decide whether you're going to be a disciple or not. That ship has sailed. You are constrained. You have to follow through. And that's what this, this passage says. The love of Christ compels us that way. It leaves us no choice. If you're struggling in your faith, think about the love of Christ. Think about this passage and think about what other choice do I have? It kind of echoes uh, Peter's words in John 6, doesn't it? Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have no choice. This is where it is. It may be hard. There may be suffering, but I'm constrained. I have to follow through with this. There's another reference here uh, from from Paul when he's talking to the Philippians about, gee, you know, whether I'm going to come to visit you, which would be for your benefit, and, and I know it would help you, but I really want to go with be with Christ. I'm hard-pressed between the two, one translation said. Well, it's the same word here. I'm constrained between the two. I've got choice A, choice B. I don't have, I don't have C. I'm constrained. So that's so what Jesus is saying here. How constrained, hemmed in, distressed I am uh, until this is finished. There's other connotations that talk about uh, suffering a sickness. That I, I'm, I'm under distress because I'm sick. So this is a rich word that, that uh, really we got to bring that meaning in here to really understand the, the dot that we're talking about, don't we? So we've, we've got a couple dots now. It still may be a little murky, but we're, we're getting a picture that's starting to emerge. Now I want to address that there's, there's a temporal side to both of these dots. So if you think about the fire, I came to, to bring fire on earth, and how I wish that it were already kindled. He's pointing to a time down in the future, okay? He's saying, it hasn't been let loose yet, but I really, I, I can't wait. Okay, then there's this idea of I have a baptism to undergo and how constrained, hemmed in, in distress I am until it is completed. So they're both pointing to the future, aren't they? Well, what would be that future? What would be the point at which God's judgment would be released and Jesus' suffering would be completed? I think there's only one answer. It's the cross. 
The cross is the wood that kindled the fire. God's judgment came through the cross. And that, that may be a different concept to you, but if you think about it, that makes sense. That, that God unleashed his fury on sin at the cross. But who took the brunt of that sin? It was a suffering servant. And for those who accept his message and come to faith in him, name him as Lord and are baptized into him, he absorbs that judgment for them at the cross. But for those who reject that, uh, reject that message, they absorb the judgment for themselves. Either way, that judgment is released. At that epoch in time, that, that point in time called the cross. Think about this, the duality of the cross. It's the unleashing of God's judgment, the instrument of God's forgiveness. Now, this may be coincidence, maybe not. Jesus uses the same word here. How constrained I am until it is finished. Final words on the cross. It is finished. Think about that. My mission is complete. My suffering is complete. I am absorbed the judgment, the wrath, the fury of God against mankind for those who accept the message. So we've got those dots. We pull them together. Let's talk about the final one here. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, not peace, but division. Well, you think about the cross a little bit, and from this point on, the cross is, is a delineator, is a separator. First Corinthians talks about it here in First Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where's the third classification here? There isn't any. It's either foolishness or it's the power of God for your salvation. There's no middle ground here. It forces you to take a stance. So I, I, I labeled this slide the imposition of the cross. It imposes itself into our life, it, lives. It injects itself into our lives and forces us. To, to reckon with it, to grapple with it. You might think that if you're drowning and, and somebody throws you a life ring, that's an imposition. It splashes right in front of you. You have to grapple with it. Is it welcome? Certainly. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's there. You have to deal with it. But if you don't want to deal with the cross, it, then it becomes foolishness. It becomes something that polarizes you against it. And it causes you then to identify yourself with that group to the side that says that the cross is foolishness. We are the wise, the learned, you know, that First Corinthians talks about here, you know, that, that, that says that's foolishness. But then Paul says to us, us who are being saved, it's not foolishness. It's the power of God for our salvation. There's no middle ground here. And the rest of the passage says, deals with this idea of there's no middle ground. And Jesus uses probably the most profound relationships that, that, that we know of. And certainly in the first century, the family was the center and core of your life. You know, the phrase blood is thicker than water. You know, if, if you're going to deal with um, relationships that tug at your heart, you're going to deal with family, right? 
little bit later in, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, you know, if anyone comes after me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, you know, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus uses the same illustration. He says, if you can get your head around these relationships and my priority over them, the rest of them are pretty easy. So it even in this passage talks about division between son and father and daughter and mother. Now, for us, that that may not be so hard to think about. You know, we have these arguments all the time or whatever. No, that, but back in this day, you know, you didn't go up, up against the father, the patriarch. It's, it's interesting. Some coworkers and I were talking the other day about different sports and how prevalent it is in American sports for the players to argue with referees. Okay. But if, if you're familiar with rugby, players do not argue with the referee. There is no talking back to the referee. That's unheard of. That that is you know it's it's ironic, but it's supposed to be a a sport of gentlemen <laughs> beating the stew out of each other, of course. But but um, you know a gentleman doesn't doesn't go back against the authority. In fact, if something needs to be clarified, they will have the captain go talk to the referee. He's the appointed one. So this is the way it was in the in the family in the first century that you know and I think we need to bring this back don't you dads you know okay you know the patriarch he he says it that's it you know if you got something to deal with go talk to your mother and she'll make an appointment with me to come and we'll we'll talk it through no. Family was everything, and, and this authority, the parental authority, was everything in this day and age, wasn't it? But look at this passage. All I did was took the words and broke them into phrases here. Three against two, two against three. This is a family five again. So what I don't see in this list is two against two with one abstaining. Okay? <laughs> Back to our point earlier. You've got to go one way or the other. You cannot stay neutral when it comes to the cross. You see it against parent. To, to child, you see it between the children, you see it between the parents, you see it between the, the, the married, you know, inner family relationships, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, that, that there will be this division. And Jesus is saying, don't think that I came to bring family peace. That's not what I'm about. Now that may be surprising to you a little bit. This gets back, I came to bring a fire. Now, do you think Jesus wants peace in our families? Uh, yeah, sure. But we have the phrase in our culture that says, uh, we need to just keep the peace. What does that mean? Don't ruffle the feathers. Okay? Let them have their opinion. You have your opinion. You need to just respect each other. Don't bring it up, especially at mealtime. You know, that just, you know, just let it go. You know, that's the idea of peace. In our families today, isn't it? Jesus said no. Sorry, I'm thinking of the illustration to follow here. We pull it together. Here we go. I will keep it together. So, about four, four years ago, 
Ruth and I had a decision to make. Um, our, our oldest daughter um, had been brought up in a Christian setting, knew the right things, knew what we stood for, and had made a decision to go against those. And so we had a decision to make in our house. Either we were going to keep the peace and allow her to do these things that were wrong and yet live under our roof where we know that she would be safe or we, or make a decision that says you cannot live here and do these things because you know that they are against the principles of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. And so we went to Colorado. We had a, a family time. We had told her that that summer we want you just to think about what life is about, get your perspective on, study your Bible, get with people, you know, get on straight spiritually. But she decided, no, that's not what I'm going to do. And so we sat down and said, okay, I need your car keys. That's my car. I pay the insurance. Um, I can't let you go do the things I know you're doing and be on the road with that car. Give me your cell phone because I pay for it and I know what you've done um, with your phone and the types of things that you've arranged to do with your phone. I'll take you to Target. We'll get a track phone. I will pay the first month for you. You have our numbers. I said, if you are in danger, if you are hungry, if you don't have a roof over your head that night, you call us. Otherwise, you're on your roof. Time of peace? No. That was, that was one of the hardest days of my life. And Ruth would attest the same. Incredibly difficult. But this, this is the Jesus of the fire. This is the Jesus who says that you cannot stay neutral. You have to go one way or the other. And at that point, Catherine had made a decision. I am going this way. And, and for it, those of you that are visiting or, or if you don't know our, our family background, um, understand there were hours, hours of conversation. This was not something that we just came straight out of the blue. There's a lot of love, a lot of tears. And so, you know, for, the next while, go to bed that night not knowing where my daughter was, not knowing who she was with. Um, and going through that week after week, month after month, our relationship with her improved. But it, it was that we cannot have peace unless we grapple with the cross. And I... I have the pleasure of announcing to you that after second service today, Captain baptized. So that's that's the power of God working. It's working through your prayers, working through the circumstances in her life, working through the Spirit. But I don't think either Ruth or I are going to claim a major role. 
But but one of the things we look back on and say we took a stand. And, and you know, looking at our failures, looking at the things we needed to change in parenting, that's one thing, but we, we took that stand. We would not be at that point, or at this point, if we had not taken that stand. So there's a fire coming, and we have to grapple. So I hope that, that between those three dots, and that a picture is emerging for you, and that you've got a big picture in your mind. Judgment and mercy collide at the cross. Judgment is brought through the cross. God's fury, his forest fire, was unleashed at the cross. The suffering servant, Jesus, absorbed that judgment for you and for me at the cross. But for those who reject that message, they absorb that judgment on their own. Jesus is not about making family peace. He's about reconciling us to God. Peace in our relationships is a byproduct of that state. When we're reconciled to God, we can have peace with one another. If we are not reconciled with God, we are not at peace. We cannot have this fake, keep the peace kind of perspective. Got uh, three takeaways just to leave you with here. That, that's basically the, the the sermon. But but I want you to take th- three thoughts away, given this big picture. First of all, does your Jesus include this, the threshing floor, or is it mostly that on the right side? Is he bouncing Johnny on the knee with uh, looking at a monarch, monarch butterfly, and that's your predominant picture, or does he have the winnowing fork in his hand? Sean's message last week, the, the time that we looked at Luke 11, the woes of Pharisees, all these, you cannot read the Gospel of Luke without getting this forced to be reckoned with picture of Jesus. Secondly, and this is taking on the, the suffering servant role for yourself, what if salvation of others depends on your faithful adherence to God's plan for your life? Okay, yeah, sure, I, I, I'll, I'll follow this plan. Well, what if that plan involves suffering? What if the salvation of others depends on your suffering? And dare I say your death? What then? Do we have that adherence? That Do we feel that constraint that we talked about earlier? That I have no choice. I will follow through with God's plan. Again, Second Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us, compels us. Leaves us no choice. The third takeaway. Do you compromise to keep the peace? Or do you seek peace by taking a stand? That stand may be divisive. That stand may bring a lot of turmoil. But is that your definition of peace? That is the true peace that Jesus came to give us. The reconcile with God. I pray that the message this morning has been helpful. For you. Thank you.